Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Megan Mullally is one of those actors who just kind of radiates confidence and poise. And in the nearly 100 roles she's had on film and television, that's made her stand out. I guess you could say she's a character actress. She plays people with huge personalities, but if she is a character actress, she's one of the best in the game. Like maybe you're a fan of Parks and Recreation. She played Tammy, the ex-wife of Ron Swanson. She's a kind of menacing, toxic seductress. Ron, by the way, is played by Nick Offerman, who's her real-life husband. I admit there was a time when that sort of behavior would have driven me wild. But I am in a healthy relationship now, Tammy. A relationship? With whom? A lovely, intelligent, self-possessed pediatric surgeon named Wendy. Sounds like a real whore. By the way, that slapping sound was Tammy enticingly tapping her face with a stick of beef jerky. She also had unforgettable credits on shows like Bob's Burgers, Children's Hospital, and 30 Rock. But she's probably best known for her role in the groundbreaking sitcom Will and Grace. She plays Karen Walker, a kind of deranged, sociopathic, judgmental socialite who works for Grace on the show. Welcome to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for the Stanley Walker Foundation benefit. Stanley loved ancient Egyptian culture. They invented the pyramid, which later became the Pyramid Scheme. (laughs) During its original run, between 1998 and 2006, the show earned 16 Emmy Awards and over 80 Emmy nominations. The show made a comeback a couple years ago. It's still funny, still weird, and also still touching. Will & Grace's 11th and final season is underway now on NBC. Let's listen to a little bit from the previous season. In this scene, Karen's in the bedroom of a fancy country club. She's on the phone with reception. She found a morphine drip in the room and mistook it for a gift. It turns out the room she booked was already occupied by a fellow socialite and a frenemy, Beverly Leslie. Beverly, played by Leslie Jordan, is an elderly, somewhat flamboyant Southern gentleman. Hello, this is Mrs. Walker in 705. Who do I have to thank for this lovely morphine drip in my room? What? I'm not recovering from plastic surgery. I've never had anything done in my life in the United States. (laughs) What do you mean someone else booked the room? I pay a lot of money to belong to this country club and I booked this hospitality suite months ago. Like to see who has balls big enough to ask me to move. Well, well, well. I must have died during surgery because the devil herself is before me. Why, Beverly Leslie, I thought they'd torn down all the corroded old Confederate statues. <laughs> Megan Mullally, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, when I was prepping for this interview, I watched a little bit of you doing Karen from the very beginning of the show, mm-hmm. and the Karen voice was much less ridiculous. Yeah, totally different. How did it become that? Like, were you? Was it always a scheme of yours to get to the point where you were doing something completely ridiculous rather than slightly ridiculous? I think, like, subconsciously it was, but 
I think what happened was I used to take really big chances in auditions. And I used to go in with really weird characters. And sometimes I would get the job and sometimes they would call the police. <laughs> so it was about a 50-50. <laughs> so um, when I auditioned for Will and Grace, for that character, I thought, yeah, I'm not going to do anything too crazy because, you know, I won't get the job. And so in the pilot, I thought the only problem was, I guess, it, so it was, it was mildly subconscious to the extent that my n- normal speaking voice is very laconic and the tone of the show is very farcical and fast paced. So it didn't really fit. So um, over the course of the first, I'd say, like 10 episodes, my voice just gets higher and higher and higher. And then suddenly, um, I seemed like I was in a farce. <laughs> but then, you know, that's that's my because I'm an instinctual, you know, performer. I don't really like. I'm not as super analytical. But then, analytically, uh, it makes sense because, you know, the character is the most judgmental person on the planet. And nothing that anyone says or does or wears is good enough for her. But then she has this quality that's inescapable, her voice, um, which is the most irritating thing (laughs) in the world. (laughs) You auditioned for Grace first, right? Yeah, I did. I went in and auditioned for Grace and they were like, Next. <laughs> did you make a big, I mean, were you, did you make a ridiculous choice when you were? No, I just, no, uh-uh. I went in and I just, it was written very real, so I just tried to be real, and they kind of flatlined. And then I went home and forgot all about it, and two weeks later, my agent called and said, they want you to audition for this pilot called Will and Grace, and I said, I already went in on that. And she was like, no, it's for a different part. And I said, there wasn't another part. And she said, I'm going to send you the script again. So she sent me the script, and I read it, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's that secretary. And then that show, Sybil had had recently been on, because this was 1998, with Chris, uh, Sybil Shepard and Christine Baranski, who played her rich, you smart know, talking, smart talking sidekick. And I thought, well, I can't. And was spectacularly great. And it's Christine Baranski, so yeah. you can't beat that right so I thought well I can't do it better than Christine Bransky did it and then I thought well maybe I can make her weird so I kind of thought of some ways to make her sort of quirkier and weirder so that's what I, that's how I auditioned I didn't have the voice but I did have some weird she was just a little weirder sometimes I feel like people who can make big clear acting choices right away it's because they are brave uh like they have like almost a foolhardy courage to make a big choice because it's scary to make a big choice that's far from yourself then other times i wonder and i wonder if this is true of you if part of it is actually self-protective that by making a choice that is really big if you do not get a part they didn't like your giant choice, not that they didn't mm. like you. Mm. Very interesting. I, I think uh, from in my uh, situation, it's like I might there might be a brain disorder involved because <laughs> for me, <laughs> for me, it's like when I first read my initial response to the material, I always have a take on it, and then I can't shake it. So I'm sort of 
I'm sort of screwed in a way because whatever my first reaction to the material is, I have a hard time, um, like if I have one of those initial reactions and I go into an audition, they're like, yeah, can you do it like totally differently? I have a little bit of a hard time shifting gears because I innately feel that my choice is absolutely the right one. (laughs) So yeah, there might be a... A slight <laughs> mental disorder involved. Um, where were you at in your career when you got the part of Karen? Well, shortly before I auditioned for Will and Grace, I was in the basement parking garage of a Bed Bath & Beyond on a payphone with my agent at the time telling him that I would no longer be auditioning for sitcoms, that I had obviously... It, I had played it out. I had reached my limit. It wasn't panning out. I mean, I, I'd, I'd done a pilot every year for many years, and they either didn't go or they went for seven episodes or 13 episodes, and then that was it. And I said, look, clearly this wasn't meant to be. And he was like, I think it is meant to be, and I think you're wrong. And I was like, okay, well, agree to disagree, but I'm not auditioning for any more pilots. And then... I didn't have enough money to pay my rent. And I said, hey, could I get some pilot auditions for sitcoms? So that's when I auditioned for Will and Grace. I kind of get the impression that you committed to being an entertainer at the age of like one and a half Mm -hmm. and never relented. One and a half days in my mother's (laughs) womb. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, there was no other. I, uh, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, I came out of the womb in a top hat and tap shoes. <laughs> and it's just true. I just, it was, that was it. And, you know. Your first word was, watcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was very showbiz from the switch. And, um, but your your I was an family. Only child. But your family had you had been, you you were born in Los Angeles and moved to Oklahoma City, and your father had been an actor in Los Angeles. And moving mm-hmm. to Oklahoma City must have been, a, in some way, a rejection of show business. Yeah, you don't move to Oklahoma City to renew your contract with show business. No, my father was done with. He thought he was done, but then he never could stop trying. But. Yeah, no, I wasn't too happy about it, trust me. I mean, we moved to Oklahoma City on my sixth birthday, and I was like, "Mm, what's up, parents? (laughs) (laughs) What are you guys thinking? Tell me, uh, lay out your thoughts behind this this weird plan. But um, then it turned out to be a really great place to grow up. Um, People in Oklahoma City are really, really nice very, you know, kind, generous, neighborly types of people. Um, not everybody. I mean, they're just like everywhere else. But um, for the most part, very nice. And so um, I was. that was a good place to grow up. But my father was not – as a matter of fact, I think when I announced that I would like to be an actor – how, how old were you? Well, I mean, I think the cat was way out of the bag already, but I think when I verbalized it, I was about seven or eight. He said, oh, no, 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 no. That's, I don't, I do not want, you know, you to, that's a terrible, it's a very hard business. I don't want you to, to do that. I don't want, and he said to my mom, I don't want her doing that. 
And this coming from a man who I heard literally wore an ascot around Oklahoma City. No, it's insane. He, it's, a city it's, with a relatively it's a, small ascot community. It's a crazy miracle that he wasn't murdered because he not only wore an ascot, but he also at one point when I was in second grade purchased a Rolls-Royce Phantom Three, uh, silver, gray, and drove that around town wearing his ascot. And the fact that some kicker on the back of a pickup truck didn't just take him out is really fortunate. Were you self-aware about how unusual that part of your family was when you were 10 years old or whatever? I knew that my father was different from the other parents because he was very, very eccentric and flamboyant. And his humor was extremely... um, dark and weird and he would really commit to a joke like nobody's business like he would you know just a minor example is he would pretend that he was having a massive heart attack and then he would fall over you know dead in his plate of spaghetti at the dinner table and my mom and, and I at first were like is he dead and then after a while we were like all right get out of the spaghetti. And um, then like another thing you would do routinely from the time I was in like second, third grade. Um, In third grade, I took the bus. And so I came home one day and my mom wasn't home. And um, being alone with my father was not my preference because he was terrifying. So uh, I first thing I said when I walked in the door was I said, um, where's mommy? And he said, because he, he he had this vocal affectation that he he did. He did a lot of accents around the house, but he also had this grandiose um, persona. And he said, my darling, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mother is dead. And I, for just a second, I was like, whoa. This is not good news. And then he was like, and he kept going. He was like, you're just going to have to live the rest of your life without a mother. And then I finally was like, okay, where is she really, though? And he was like, the grocery store. So um, I had a therapist tell me one time that, uh, like, the thing that I had to provide for my children, if I was going to provide one thing to my children— was just a sense that their family and their home were their home. Mm -hmm. That whatever happened in the world, no matter what, they had security in our family. Even if they did, even if they went out and murdered someone Mm -hmm. or whatever, um, or someone tried to murder them, they could always... That's amazing. That's really, really good advice. Yeah, see, I had the opposite. The thing I didn't realize about my father... I knew that he was like his personality was different because my friends would say your father is really weird or like I don't I'm I'm afraid of your father. or I don't like being around your father. Um, But I what I didn't understand was that my father was like a huge like ginormous alcoholic um, and incredibly emotionally and verbally abusive (laughs) and um, and also that he. Uh, was a well, I knew he was a womanizer um, because my mom would kind of, you know, use me as her um, 
co-conspirator to try to get to the bottom of certain, you know, flings that he was having. But <clears throat> the thing that I didn't realize is that everybody's household wasn't like that. Like, I thought everybody was terrified to go home after school. I just thought everybody was. I, and I never talked about it. I never mentioned it. I never said anything to anybody. I've never spoken about it publicly until very recently, like within the last year or so. But, yeah, it was a thing. And I, I guess I just didn't um, know that I was uh, out of the ordinary. And it really wasn't even until the last – because I have friends that I've known since first grade, since I went to that school where you go for the whole time – and it wasn't until the last, you know, 10 years or so even that I said to them, like, did you know that my dad was like this? And, uh, yeah, I, I kept a lot in. I don't know why I did. I guess because I I couldn't do anything wrong or I would, like, something terrible would happen. So I just tried to never do anything wrong. So I guess I never talked about my dad, even though he died in 1992. I never talked about him. Because I thought I'd get in trouble. I know for me, like a big thing about thinking about my own parents was recognizing that it was okay for me to have had my own experience and that the fact that it, the problems in my relationship with my parents were not me like saying they were fundamentally evil human beings or whatever because of my own wish to avoid conflict with them. Mm -hmm. But that it was okay for me to have had this experience that said these th that changed me and affected me in these ways irrespective of whether it was something fundamental about who my parents were it was something fundamental about who i was yeah right so yeah i mean it, that's your experience and so it is what it is and i uh, whatever happened um I want to tell you about my conversation with my mom, but also I just want to say that whatever happened with my uh, in my upbringing and with my dad, my my, my father, um, I feel like I've transcended that now. You know, I feel like now that is behind me. I don't that doesn't inform my day to day existence, and um, you know, I feel bad. I feel bad that my father and a lot of people in my whole father's family had a lot of problems and were unhappy and there was seemed to be like a a pattern with the especially the men my father's side and i feel bad i feel sorry that that happened and a lot of that was a product of the time and the culture you know, it's kind of like a madman thing where it's like you have affairs and you drink a lot and but then there was a little bit extra element added to my my father but anyway i'm i'm I feel that I've uh, I've stopped the bloodline, <laughs> and I, I personally have transcended those those things for my own personal day to day life, uh, which is great. Um, but back to when when I spoke to my mom, um, it was so incredibly poignant because it started the whole thing started because I. I was at visiting my mom in Oklahoma City. I try to get there like four times a year. And I was standing by her bedside because she has 24-hour care in her home and um, paid for by Will and Grace. <laughs> and <laughs> I was standing by her bedside and I said, Mom, guess what? Nick's coming in tonight. And she goes, oh, Nick is such a good man. Your father was a bad man. 
And I don't know why, but in that moment, it's not the first time she'd ever said something like that or the, you know, 20th. But for some reason in that moment, it just all hit me like a ton of bricks. And that was when the whole like thinking like, well, was he a narcissist or was he something else or this or that? That's when that started. And it set me on this path of talking to my uncle who is the last living sibling of my father's and talking to other people who knew my father and this and that. And I spoke to my mom, of course, and she said, you know, he wasn't a good man. I just, I loved him. I said, well, why didn't you ever leave him? She said, I I loved him. I always thought I could change him and that... I thought, well, tomorrow is going to be different, and he's going to, because he wasn't like that at the beginning, and so she was all. He was great at the beginning. He lured her in. She's the perfect one because she's so loving and kind and open and positive. Totally positive men- mental attitude, um, to coin a phrase, and. Um, so she's the perfect person for someone like that. And then he was so good to her at the beginning that she spent 27 years of marriage trying to recapture that. She was like, well, I know he can be like this because he was once before. And then he would, like, push it to the very brink, and then he would be really amazing again and very Svengali-like and get her back, and then he'd go back to being horrible. Then they divorced, and then he never he never really left her. Um, he came over to her house every single afternoon and she would make him lunch and he would hang out sometimes through dinner and into the evening. Did you think about his career when you were going through your career? Um, Because he must have been a... a This is probably none of the stuff you're planning to talk about, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know. This has gone down a very very interesting, different road. You hunt where there's deer. Comedy. You know, I... No, I didn't think about his career. I thought about my own, just trying to hone my own talents and um, develop my skills, you know, like to the as best I could. But I will say that when I first moved to Los Angeles, I moved here in 1985. I was 26 years old, and um, I was here for a very short time and the first television show that I auditioned for was a show called The Ellen Burstyn Show starring none other than Ellen Burstyn and Carol Burnett (laughs) starring Carol Burnett and uh, so Ellen Burstyn played my mother and Elaine Stritch played my grandmother and um, we shot 13 episodes of that in New York and anyway came back to, to Los Angeles and my father called and announced to me that he would be moving to Los Angeles and I needed to get him an agent. And I said, um, okay. <laughs> you know, I said, okay. I didn't have the, the balls to say no or, you know, get your own agent or don't move here or, you know, I'm not your, I don't know. I just was confused and I was trying to, help and be a total people pleaser, you know. So he did. He moved out. He got an apartment a block away from my apartment. And I was with ICM, that agency at the time. And he had a crazy headshot that wasn't cute. And he was, you know, 60 years old-ish, somewhere in there. 
and he didn't have any credits of note. And I took it to ICM, and they were like, we can't, I mean, we can't really do a lot with your dad. He doesn't really, he doesn't have a reel, or he doesn't have anything on film. He doesn't have credits, really. He's, he's like a kind of a hard type to cast. And I said, okay, and they said, but how about the voiceover department? So the voiceover department at ICM actually took him on, and so he did have some voiceover auditions, and that was it. And then after about a year, he became very um, – he packed up and moved back to Oklahoma City in a huff, saying he would never set foot in California again, and he didn't. You know, at the time, nobody said – like, nobody said anything to me, but, like, after the fact, I know people have said, like, I just couldn't believe it when your father moved out to Los Angeles and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say that to me? <laughs> like, nobody said anything. Like, I was just out there, like, trying to get my dad into show business. I mean, it's kind of an only child thing to not have any, like, to not even think to run it by somebody, somebody else because you're just... I feel yeah. like people with siblings, they're well, used to having like a a, a, co a special coven that they encircle whenever there's a question in their lives, especially a family question. Yeah. I just, I didn't have that. And nobody's, nobody ever said, and my mom, for whatever reason, I'm sure my mom was fit to be tied about it. I'm sure she was furious about it, but she didn't say that to him or me because of, you know, the way things were. Because, you know, you didn't want to incur his wrath. So, you know, that was a, f a cute year. <laughs> um, and now work in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that should be the tag on half of the serious things said on this program. <laughs> I know. It's so true. It's like every comedian has the same exact story, right? Don't we all have the exact same story? I just never told mine until, like, I'm sitting here with you. So there's a first time for everything. Um, I believe in my heart that there are performers who just have a gift that they had to share. Yeah. But mostly, there's something going on if your goal is to get people you don't know to like you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Right. I don't mean, I don't even ever think about that, honestly. I know that that's a, that's a common, commonly thought, um, but I never think about that. I want people to like me in real life, but, in prof but professionally, I just, I'm more of a, I'm more of a, I'm like a punk, you know, like I have a very punk attitude about it. Like I'll do, I'll do anything if I feel like it's the funniest thing to do or the saddest thing to do or the most right thing to do. I'll just I'll do anything if I feel like that's the right thing. If somebody gives me a direction that I don't agree with, I can be reluctant. I'll be like, I don't know, that doesn't feel right to me. But then you know I'm a team player, so you know I can take direction, but. Um, I just, ha <laughs> for, I just have for the at home listener. We got yeah, a facial expression those, that means, <laughs> yeah, for all those uh, people who might potentially be thinking of hiring me for something. <laughs> sure, I can take direction. What do you mean? <laughs> Where'd you get the idea that I couldn't? <laughs> but I don't know. I always have such a strong idea about something, and um, sometimes my ideas are a little radical. 
and I just want to do that. I want to do something radical and weird, like my band Nancy and Beth, which is sort of my favorite thing in the world. It's very, it's it's very radical in its own extremely entertaining way. We'll finish up my interview with Megan Mullally after a break. She'll tell me about the time she sang the theme song from Green Acres on stage at the Emmys with now President Donald Trump. Life is strange, folks. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwater. Smartwater is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smartwater created two new ways to hydrate. Smartwater Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smartwater Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smartwater by saying, Alexa, order Smartwater. Smartwater. That's pretty smart. News breaks and big stories change every day. That's why we're giving you NPR's 10-minute morning news podcast on Saturdays, too. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first, start your day with us weekdays at 6 Eastern and Saturdays at 8, a bit later to suit your weekend from NPR News. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is megan mullally You've seen her in Parks and Recreation, Children's Hospital, many other shows and films. She also stars on Will and Grace, where she plays Karen Walker. The show just kicked off its 11th and final season on NBC. This new season of Will and Grace was like more than a decade after the last season Mm -hmm. of Will and Grace. Yeah. Did you know when the possibility of it happening coming up that it was a good idea to do it? Well, I don't. I guess this is as good a time as as any to reveal that I'm a famous psychic. But um, (laughs) when we we first got the script for the Vote Honey video, the YouTube video that started the whole thing, the election video, um, we got that script that Max and uh, the creators of our show, Max Munchik and David Cohen, had written. I read it. I was laughing and crying. I put it down, picked up my phone. I texted Max and I said, why can't we just do the show again? And he texted right back, we can. And of course, neither of us knew what we were talking about. We we're just blowing it out of our b-holes. But um, I just had this overpowering instinct that we could literally bring the entire show back to television, right back where we left it. It's I funny because like, when I hear people who work on the show talk about the show, whether it's the creators or the cast members or, or writers or whomever, I see the you know the question comes up like, how's it different? 
And, you know, there are things that are different about it. It's set in the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. And that's 11 or 12 years after the last ones were set. Mm -hmm. But basically everybody seems to just say, no, it's yeah, we're doing the show that we do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's almost all the same people, too. So, I mean, Jim Burroughs has directed every single episode. We're now into the 200 and somewhere around 220 or something like that. We have the same department heads, same camera guys. It's almost all the same. It's like 70 to 75% the same people. The key is, of course, the writing. And the writing is so good. And we have, I think we have right now seven or eight of our original writers, like our best, 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 the best of the best. And, I mean, I think the second season is really coming along nicely. We've already shot three three to four episodes, depending on how you count it. Um, And I think it's really solid. I think it's going to be really good. Can I ask you, you did a bit with Donald Trump, who is the president of the United States now. Mm, I'm familiar. The time he was a television star. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I I don't know how you feel about that experience, but I am going to play a little bit of it. Okay, great. Yeah. This is the Emmys, like, 10 or 12 years ago. This is 2004, I think? Six. Was it? 2006. Just give me that countryside. I mean, you're, you're selling it there, Megan. I loved it. Um, okay, a lot of funny, uh, hilarious aspects to that little story. First of all, they did a thing on the Emmys called Emmy Idol because this was at the height of American Idol's popularity. So they were going to do a little thing where they would have well-known people come on and perform theme songs from various golden age television shows, right? And then people would literally call in and vote on a winner. And then people would vote in real time. Which was at for that time, was, you, th- you say it was 2006. For yeah. that time, that was quite progressive. So normally, even before my agent could finish the sentence, they want you to do this weird thing on the Emmys, I'd be like, no. But they said, they got through the sentence, which was they want you to do the theme song to Green Acres as Karen with Donald Trump. And I was like, I will be doing that. <laughs> because there's nothing <laughs> be, there's nothing weirder that you could do on network television. Yeah, I will definitely be doing that for that exact reason. Of course, at the time, no one would have ever, at least I would never have ever in a billion years have guessed that he, I didn't know he ever had political aspirations. I mean, now I know, but I didn't know then. He was just this funny he was a caricature of himself. He was this person hosting it. That was when The Apprentice was super popular. Everybody was watching it. And everybody was going around saying, you're fired and doing their finger. And, you know, everybody was doing it. And I thought, well, certainly this guy is playing kind of a character on The Apprentice. He's not really like that in real life. He's like, 
exaggerating his personality for to make some good television. But no, turns out in real life he was exactly like that. And I thought, oh, that's even better. That's really funny. So I sprained my ankle the night before, um, like dancing to a commercial jingle on television, trying to entertain Nick by doing a stupid dance. I sprained my ankle. <laughs> so when we got out there, they had to like, I, I came out on crutches in the commercial and then I was just like, if you watch, I'm balancing on one foot for the entire song. Um, and then at the end, he started to leave and he forgot that I couldn't walk. So he come, he came back and he picked me up like a sack of potatoes under his arm, like literally under his arm, like a, and carried me off stage. Very gallant. And backstage, he introduced me to Melania, his wife the most beautiful woman in the world. That's how she was introduced to me. There's not a lot you can say <laughs> to that. You can just be like, congratulations. I mean, to you look each of you. really pretty. Yeah. So then um, I was in my Will and Grace dressing room like the next day, and the phone rang, and it was Donald Trump. And he said, uh, listen, oh, it was a competition, Emmy Idol, and we won. Okay, we got the most votes. So Congratulations. Said, Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> he said, uh, listen, we really needed to win that thing, and we did, and you were a big part of that, and I just wanted to say that we won, and not only do we win, but it was a landslide. I hear, he said, I hear it was a landslide. We killed them. Nobody else was even close. And so I'm just calling to say that we really needed to win it, and we did. And that was Emmy Idol. <laughs> Megan Mullally, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to come and be on Pullside. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real... A lot happened. (laughs) 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 The really went down. (laughs) Megan Mullally from last year. Catch her on Will & Grace Thursday nights on NBC. Also watch her in everything else she's ever done. She is always great. She rules. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California, where we have spent the entire fall roasting. I mean, just absolutely roasting. And our colleague Christian was nice enough to buy the office ice cream sandwiches. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And there are so many years of Bullseye interviews available to you. Uh, You can find them on our YouTube page. You can find them in your podcast app. 
You can find them on our website, MaximumFun.org. We're also on Twitter and Facebook, twitter.com slash bullseye. It's one place you can go to follow us, and I think that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.